This is The Crucible. The JRTC Experience. This is where we discuss warfighting skills and lessons learned in a decisive action training environment for large-scale combat operations at JRTC. Prior to that, so I have a total of about 43 rotations for 
here in JRTC between two duty stations. Otherwise, I have served in, as a striker commander as well. Okay, awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Drew Zabriski. I'm currently Lima 5, so I'm the BSB XO OCT. I've been here for 10 rotations now, six of those. I was the BSB SPO OCT. As mentioned, recently promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, and I've slid over now to be the BSB XO. Uh, predominantly served in airborne and light units. I did my field grade KD time up in Alaska, the airborne brigade up there, as a BSB XO and a BSB SPO. Okay, awesome. Captain Richard Snyder, and I'm uh, currently the live fire FSO. I started off in the 173rd, so light airborne background, and then spent some time commanding uh, at the schoolhouse and being an instructor. And I've been here for two years. There. So I've been in the, a fire support officer at all levels of the company, battalion, brigade, and the division. So. Major Paul Cyphers, I'm currently the Brigade S3 OCT. Uh, spent my time as Lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne, uh, and then as a company commander in the Superior uh, Geronimo Company, Baker Company. Uh, and then did my field grade KD time in uh, 3rd Brigade, 10th Mountain, and then uh, been JRTC here for about a year now. Awesome. Okay, um, so although it's the second question, sir, because I guess I asked Captain Malcolm the first question, uh, the, the question I have for you comes from uh, MCCC. So what is JRTC plan to do to reinforce combined arms maneuver beyond just the organic uh, brigade combat teams and enablers? And that, that's the first part of the question. And then additionally, what advice would you give company commanders to thrive in this LISCO fight? Yeah, I'll take you know those two because I think it sets the tone here. We we train large scale combat operations here. I mean, when I was the commander of operations group, uh, we prepared SFABs for Afghanistan and, and other deployments. Uh, when I was here several times before that, obviously over the last twenty years, um, you know, it wasn't the same as when I was thirty years ago. We spent a lot of time on on counterinsurgency operations. Right now, it's important to understand that we've transitioned completely to the brigade fighting inside a large-scale combat scenario as part of a division and a corps. We do many things in the constructive to make the brigade feel that they're part of that larger fight. The other thing that's always been important to me is the existence of the CTCs is partially because the certified two levels down kind of breaks down uh, when you get to the brigade level. You know, it's very difficult. Corps do not uh, certify their brigades, and it's very difficult given division op tempos even for them to certify their battalions. And so these places exist first and foremost to train our brigade combat teams and certify them for the highest level of readiness. But there is a ton of room for either non-BCT echelons above BCT type units that come here. We've trained a chemical battalion. We've had Devardi headquarters and Devardi's come train, sustainment brigades. This very rotation we're about to begin has a roll three hospital that's going to do casualty <coughs> play as part of the rotation. And so whether it's engineers or MPs, our Air Force TAC Ps, our Naval gunfire, we are doing things in this robust scenario with the 21st Airborne Division to give training opportunities to anybody. And so my standard answer to any leader who would like to get some repetitions for their organization is give us a call, we'll figure it out, and either you can come down here, which costs money, or we can do it constructively from your home station and still get you the training reps and the benefit of a division being live here. We are also super sophisticated when it comes to our information environments, although I think we need to get much better. 
And so we are training MISO. We are using ChatGPT to drive information operations and public affairs and things like that. So we can do a ton of things here. The, the quick answer I would give for company commanders, because that's really a great question for these guys, is it's a difficult job because you are constantly in motion as a company commander. You're constantly getting orders from the battalion, and you've got to ensure that you're doing those troop leading procedures at the company level. The biggest thing that I see is we don't enforce the basics. There are weapons, to quote First Sergeant Rod from, uh, from our OCT Kilo team, you know, you've got to cite those weapons in as a company commander. It's your responsibility to do the engaging area development. It's your responsibility when your soldiers are tired to ensure that they're doing RNS patrols, that they're disciplined enough to take a knee, then a long haul, then start digging. And so I really think what successful company commanders with their first sergeants, by the way, do is they enforce the basic fundamentals like the sergeant major of the army has said to us many times since he's taken over you got to be brilliant at the basics. Okay, well, I'm going to take uh, one of the questions uh, submitted by the um, Sergeant Major Acad the Sergeant Major Academy, and uh, Sergeant Major uh, Walker from the Sergeant Major Academy uh, asked this one. And so, you know, for the for the group up here, uh, you know, where could you see Sergeant Majors, or how have you seen Sergeant Majors uh, extend influence and support? of uh, large-scale combat operations. Okay, uh, yes sir, so really what we're seeing down at the troop level is that sergeants major are extending that, uh, basically their influence throughout the organization, primarily through their physical movement throughout the battlefield. So oftentimes what we see even up at the squadron level is that the sergeant major is kind of a gopher for that squadron commander. Where whenever there's a problem, he places himself at the friction point. And something that's really interesting that I've noticed throughout the past couple rotations, which is a great TTP, is that you'll have squadron commanders or, and their sergeants major will have specific dedicated touch points probably once a day, but otherwise they're generally in separate locations, which has often really facilitated the success of that organization because that, sergeant's, that sergeant major is moving around, hitting the right places, seeing the right people, obviously facilitating cast of act. One thing I would add to that, though, is that understanding the soldier for that sergeant major, because if they're moving around a lot and placing themselves at the friction at the friction points, it's really important to make sure they do at least get some sort of rest cycle in there so that they aren't burning themselves or they're driving around. I think additionally, sir, uh, in addition to being at points of friction, their battlefield circulating for that battalion commander or the brigade commander, their eyes and ears, they're coming back and then they're providing feedback on friction that they've identified at some of those areas. Uh, with operations sergeant majors are particularly important too, just based on you know the, the field grades being able to build out a timeline and then allow for the, the ops sergeant major uh, to lack of better term weaponize that timeline and ensure that the staff is updating all of their running estimates uh, to ensure uh, that the operations process can continue. Like it's a huge impact on the staff and it really drives productivity down uh, at echelon. One, one, one thing I just jump in, I'm gonna limit, but uh, number one, concur with what everybody said. We don't have enough people in our battalions uh, to have officer roles and NCO roles. It's best person, best job, and our, and our sergeants majors can help the commander and the staff identify who's the best at that thing as we fill out uh, the ability to do things for continuous operations over a long duration period of time. The other thing I would encourage you as we look at command posts at the battalion level is empower your operations sergeants major or your senior NCO 
to own that thing, and it's their law to help keep that thing running. Nothing comes in or out of that place without that senior NCO, the officer major, saying, yes, that can come in, or no, you got to share. Any other thoughts uh, on what you've seen effective with Star Majors really helping extend it? So, what, with in line with everyone else, the, the Sergeant Major is an awesome combat multiplier for the battalion commander as well as the staff. Having the, the Sergeant, uh, what we see when effective units come through, and you see a Sergeant Major that can take to the commander's intent, move it down to the batteries because he has a little bit more mobility on the battlefield than what the commander may have, and then he can take himself down to the points of friction, provide intent, as well as get some context with what is going on down at the battery or troop level, company level, that maybe we can't get across on a 45 second radio call, right? So he can provide a little context, bring that back to the staff, and then we, you know, it can get internalized inside there as well as providing more. Okay. Hey, yep. I think the only thing that wasn't discussed is the mentorship piece. Uh, being a senior NCO, he can mentor both the NCOs and the officers at, at all echelons, and we need it. Um, and, and it's, yeah. it's through that presence. I, you know, you, I was in the Wayback Machine as we are talking about this, and having a, a SAR major that can come down that's truly a subject matter expert on weapon systems when we think about like a defense. Like nobody better to spot check where we're putting the key weapon systems for effectiveness. And I think it, you're spot on. It's not just the NCOs, it's the officers that get that mentorship as well. Okay. Um, so we're going to come back to you because I'm sure that's a brilliant question, but I'm going to take a previously submitted question. Hopefully the odds aren't against us. So what are some best practices for conducting uh, troop leadership procedures in this environment, which is always contested and always under really time constraints? So, uh, sir, what, what I would tell you is, is that really what it is is just it, it maintaining that discipline, as General Gardner mentioned, at the, at the basic leader level actually carrying to that timeline. You have to make time to actually execute those TOPs, right? And understanding that you may prioritize things within that, but you never just fully cut anything out or skip that. And it's also important to make sure that you message that to your higher level echelons, such as your squadron or your battalion leadership, and let them know that if if the if, if the MDMP process at a higher level is cutting into your TLPs, that there's some risks associated with that. And that they are, they are aware at that level of what of what they're leaving on the table. So best practices. There's a million different ways to skin the cat. However, we talk. Why we got to be that way with cats? <laughs> but we talk a lot about how your pace can't be a menu. However, battalion brigade is communicating down to the company battery troop level the intent, the mission set, the graphics, whatever you're doing, those conditions have to be set within that pace so that company commander, that first sergeant, troop commander, veteran commander, whoever it is, actually can receive the information, be able to process that, and turn it into something usable by the platoons. But within that, it's still making sure you're able to message and get across that intent, focusing on the adjacent unit coordinations, focusing on, at minimum, the direct fire control measures you need so your junior subordinate leaders can actually execute that Discipline initiative that we always talk about. Yeah, and so you uh, you talked um, about the the reps, the advantages that you get because of reps, right? How does those how do those reps translate for Geronimo and SFPs? Absolutely, sir. So I mean, we of every ten engagements we have with a rotational training unit, we'll lose five to seven, and 
RQ is getting better, and so is Geronimo. So we take, we see a unit do something, wow, that really worked. We're going to use that for next time. We start to implement that into what we do. We bring our leadership together. We have meetings at the time, company troop level, and we talk through that. And we say, hey, you're not doing this anymore. We saw this unit do this. We're going to steal that from them and use that next rotation. Yeah, and co-define things. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, Maneuver Center of Excellence, do we have you up? Sir, I can hear you if you can hear me. Okay, awesome. All right, go ahead. Good. Do I need to back up again? <laughs> Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Captain Weber, Marine student here at MQRC. Uh, history has a habit of repeating itself. Has the Army considered large-scale joint exercises with the Marine Corps focused on joint forcible entry operations in the Pacific? So, so one thing uh, you know that I'd, I'd say is we have the capability to do that. It's really about worldwide commitments right now. We've got the capability. I'll turn it to the COG. You know, we have had Marines down here in the past. Typically, it's been about embassy security and uh, and pulled in. But uh, every rotation, we're also green flag east. So every rotation, we do have Air Force uh, in here. So it's really about where where do the other services want to do their training. At the same time, what I would say is there's not a single rotation at the Joint Readiness Training Center that doesn't have allies or partners from another country. For example, we've got the Welsh Guards in this rotation. We've had UAE, we've had Japan, Mexico, Colombia, uh, Canada, just in the, in the year uh, since I've been back. Um, so the first thing I would say is when, when you go, when you go to, to back to a battalion or a regiment, you know, sign them up for a rotation, reach out, uh, come down, uh, you might have to pay the airfare, uh, but we're, we're always eager to have folks train here. Uh, and, and then, you know, what I, what I would add is, you know, the Marines do great training. You know, I, I spent some time out in California. The, the things that we do at the fundamental level are really going to enable us to work well together. And so, you know, oftentimes what we see is if, if we can be really good at the fundamentals, it's a lot easier when we start uh, – either adding on uh, allies, partners, or, or joint partners as well. All right, um, what if, if we could reach out to the Maneuver uh, Support Center of Excellence. Are you up? What, while you're getting up, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna go ask a, uh, another question, and I've got this one uh, from the uh, Field Artillery Captain's Career Course. Uh, so, you know, how, how are, are lessons of what we've seen either in uh, recent conflicts or uh, or here at JRTC affecting future artillery employment techniques uh, against uh, peer adversaries and large-scale combat operations? And I'll I'll, uh, I'll start over here with uh, Captain Snyder. Sure. Uh, so the biggest thing we're seeing is the ability to use our organic assets. We have to understand. Uh, the operational environment and how we're going to be able to disperse, how we're going to be able to camouflage, and how we're going to be able to harden ourselves, uh, especially for that passive uh, stuff, right? We need to be able to make ourselves harder targets uh, in order to keep our guns in the fight for the brigade. Yeah, I, I agree with what uh, Rich says. Um, recent recent combat operations that we've been seeing and the way we've trained here with uh, LISCO is we see that artillery is still king. Um, as the environment goes, that's the way we kill in mass and volumes. And 
having an understanding of our doctrinal procedures and how we incorporate that into combined arms uh, maneuver will and, and refine those processes. It will see uh, huge success as we move forward into the list. All right, I'm going to I'm going to turn to uh, Major Cyphers. Uh, you know, from a maneuver side. What have you learned about employing fires in a large scale uh, combat operation from watching you? It's, uh, it's difficult, sir. It's, <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's hard to synchronize it all. You know, we what we've seen at the battalion level and company level is, well, you know, a company commander always wants to plan nine targets and he, and he thinks they're all going to be one five five. Uh, but, but we need to understand really what is going to be in support of that uh, maneuver unit. And then really when we start talking about echelon fires, like we need to understand really what that means. I think, sir, and so, you know, we'll get focused on, um, you know, trying to, to get all the Air Force assets in support of us, but what we really don't think about is, is the number of effective mortar missions that we can get in support of our, our maneuver units. And then when we do get allocated those in, uh, artillery targets, uh, how do we best use them uh, in support of the baton and the brigade's uh, uh, target party, sir? And so, so my follow-up, like, what, you know, what, where do we see common friction points with our ability to actually employ uh, either mortars or fill artillery at the company or troop level? Understanding the logistical problem that it takes in order to facilitate the number of fire missions in LISCO uh, and, and be able to get out of our comfort zone because the battalion might be some, are hard to see past 24 hours. We gotta be able to anticipate 72 hours for those in the class five needs uh, and that's got to be something from the war platoon and the FA batteries, providing that right refinement and actually giving good data to their higher headquarters to be able to do a better job of anticipating. Good, and you turn that totally back onto the, the fires community. Yeah. I was actually going at you know how maneuver people do it, but I like it, self-aware. So I think two, the two things that we see, and we see it every rotation, detailed planning to enable synchronization, and then rehearsals. Running through the tech, the sensor to shooter technical rehearsal from the company FO with an observer plan all the way back to our delivery asset. Running units that can routinely run those tech rehearsals see significantly more success than when we just try to dynamically handle it. In so, what are some of the components that that make an effective uh, tech rehearsal? Because um, this is stuff I didn't know when I was a battalion commander. I mean, I'm not too not too embarrassed to admit it. Um, so I, I think the trigger, establishment of the trigger, what is going to, how are we going to do it? We see a lot of PIDs or on calls, which is really hampering to the artillery battalion. Uh, <coughs> if we don't schedule or synchronize and schedule out our fires, then we have a long list of targets that can be executed at every time, and it challenges fire direction officers uh, at the battalion and the platoon level. And then just our communications, like the pace. A lot of things just go back to the pace. How are we talking all the way from the platoon all the way up to the uh, back to back to up to the platoon on the on the gun line through the brigade and professional? And, and then it really starts with getting the right participants. Like the right people have to participate in that tech rehearsal, and we get pretty lax sometimes, saying like, "Oh, never mind, that person's just not on the net. We'll, we'll push." And that part that part becomes where we have the friction. Okay. You know, one, one thing I would just recommend to, to company commanders and battalion assistant S3s and battalion 3s is a lot of units successfully do uh, walk and shoots or fire support coordination exercises. Um, what I would suggest, which can be powerful, is when you have a company set of leadership that's not doing the fire support coordination exercise, bring them over to the battery, bring them to the FDCs so that they get an appreciation during that training event 
for what it looks like from the gun line uh, so that will help to the point of platoon to platoon communication so you and you brought up one thing that I, I kind of asked you to pull the thread on a little bit and I think sir it you know gets to being able to watch how the thing actually works what, you know what's the difference between a target that's been through a attack rehearsal and is fully digital versus we're doing it all on voice and it hasn't been fully tech rehearsed. Speeds are why it, it's speed. So we have this belief that we can do it faster on the on the radio, but it's really not. Digital fires expedites the process, right? It's really what it does. It allows the computer to do the ballistic solution and solve the problem for us, and it uh, reduces human error, especially on the T10 when we've been up for 10 days and we have no sleep and we're not thinking real right and buttons start looking, you know, fuzzy. If it's all inside of the, the, the computer, it, it will process much faster and you'll have much more accuracy and safety for the soldiers down the line. Right. And sort of feed is our... And sort of here what we see is like we're doing, we're doing this at the company level times 10 because we're doing it across whole brigades versus in a Calfax potentially all we're seeing is that one mission, right? So it just scales different. Absolutely, sir. Uh, the scale, whereas I got four battalions out there, you know, three maneuvers with the cab out front, and then working with the FA battalion versus just doing one, keeping multiple networks going in at the same time and rehearsing that. And, and really, and the other thing the tech rehearsal does for you, it, it gives you a complex. I mean, it, it's a communications exercise that shows that we can talk from sensor to shooter. So every time we execute one, you're really doing a, a complex at the same time. Validating that your uh, systems are operational. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, I I have uh, one from CCTV. Um, so so here's one out there. Uh, what TTPs are we finding successful uh, for defending BSAs? Uh, uh, Absolutely, sir. Uh, so recently we've seen BSAs start to operate in a base cluster formation as opposed to a consolidated BSA. Um, so it's very difficult to find terrain that is large enough to support a consolidated BSA, especially if you start incorporating the FTCBs. Uh, it's difficult to get a large BSA into the tree line enough to provide concealment. And then as Geronimo says, it's easy to find and it's easy to kill if you have a consolidated BSA. So we're starting to see some base clusters out there, which is phenomenal for dispersion. So you take some of your commodities, you don't have all your fuel assets in one location, all your ammo in one location, sir. Uh, and you push it out to different locations, it makes it harder to find, harder to destroy. There are some challenges with that, specifically command and control. Who's running those nodes? Uh, if you have a node that has multiple companies, who's the C2 for that element? And then sort of the communications infrastructure or how are you communicating back and forth? Okay, give me the enemy perspective there. It, we've seen probably about 50-50 in the last year with units either the, the large consolidated sort of legacy BSA versus the base cluster. What, yes. What's that look like from the enemy perspective? So just like you said, sir, over the course of last year, uh, really, we've really seen in the last few rotations is the giant tent city BSAs, easy to find, super easy indicators to see with our SUAS uh, that we fly our recon elements on the ground, super easy to spot. <coughs> with these clusters, we are having a much more difficult time finding them, first of all, and second of all, justifying the allocation of combat power to destroy something so small. So if there's 
a single fueler, a couple of LMTVs and a tent set up, we're likely not sending a company there to destroy it. We're also likely not allocating fires assets to adjudicate on that target. So likely that element is going to survive a little bit longer versus the larger, more indicated No, the one, the one thing I would add to it, because I'm seeing a lot of confusion on it, and I think it's important to the question we ask. If you ask an organization where their forward support company is, you, you may get a different answer than if you ask where their uh, field trains and combat trains are or where their supplies are. And I, I, I put the plug in. I think our doctrine is sound. Having done large-scale combat operations, I would argue, as a, a logistics commander of an HHC, which used to include the FSCs 20 years ago, um, I think you decouple your field trains from the BSA at your own peril. Um, having that combat trains forward and having that field trains back gives you a battlefield framework that allows the battalion, and by extension the companies in that battalion, to be able to react and to be able to give yourself a true pace plan for what your supplies are needed. Otherwise, what you wind up with is the BSA, depending on the strength of our logstat reporting, which is usually not that strong, um, is really guessing at what they think forward needs. And the reason I bring it up uh, is because I made this mistake even myself as a brigade commander, is I don't think my company commanders understood that I in no way was mandating their location on the battlefield. In no way when we say the field trains is back there and the combat trains is forward and the company trains even further forward, in no way are we dictating where supplies and quantities have to be. That is MET-T dependent. But it's very important to keep that 4-0 doctrine of that battlefield framework and adjust from there based on the tactical need. Otherwise, I see battalions constantly find themselves in perennial emergency resupply. Sir, if I can, so we see units that have an FTCP co-located with the BSA and we coach for the FSC commander to be at that FTCP because that's your senior logistician in that battalion and they can liaise directly with the BSB commander and the SPO those battalions get their problems solved much faster than battalions that do not have an FTCP or not the FSC commander co-located at the BSA. Not saying that he or she has to stay at the BSA, they can push forward to the CTCP, check on their company, but them operating out of the BSB uh, allows them to, to liaise with some of those senior sustainment individuals in the brigade and get their problems solved a lot faster. Well, they also have better, usually better comms yes. from there uh, because the, the BSA generally has the comms package. In what you're a uh, former battalion S4 and support platoon leader, it's that it's really the constant movement of a commander, right? To understand what's happening, to go forward, to talk to the battalion commander, the battalion S4, to be at the CTCP, to liaise with the HCC commander, take that back, go back to the BSA, engage with the senior sustainer, the sustainment coordinator for the brigade. And I mean, that's this hive of activity is really what enables us to be, I think, successful. Yeah, and, and to your point, I mean, just throwing out the, the war story, as, a, as that company commander, the important place for me to be was forward at the near edge of the Euphrates River for the wet gap crossing to ensure the resupply, right? So, it, again, it doesn't dictate where the leader has to be. That's that team. Okay, I think we've got a, uh, a question uh, from the uh, Maneuver uh, Support Center of Excellence now. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Hey, I 
apologize. I kept getting bumped off every time I uh, pushed the talk uh, break. Uh, we here at IMSCO are on the short final for publishing ADP 337, which describes how we integrated the protection warfighting function at Echelon. And our question to the team is, uh, what are your observations on the success or failure of integrating the protection warfighting function in your deliberate planning process? Over. Appreciate it. That's a, a great question. And so I'm, I'm actually going to start uh, down here with uh, Major Cyphers. Yeah. So, sir, I think uh, you know the best way we can integrate the, the protection warfighting function, and, and you know, I think folks all automatically kind of default to the defense whenever we start talking about the protection warfighting function. But it's also how we incorporate them in the uh, in the offense. Um, you know, whether whether it's uh, you know protecting the air, whether you're talking about establishing obstacles, where we're talking about uh, you know, uh, decon. Uh, you know, all those things kind of kind of roll into uh, you know you know all types of operations. And I and I think you know what we see here generally is that we're automatically going to default uh, you know to, to getting that down to the 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 the, the, you know, the PEB does the, the engineers, uh, but really at the brigade staff level and, and down to the battalion level. You know, how do we uh, start to, to think about all those things with regard to protection, whether it's uh, mobility or, or counter mobility, sir? Okay. Uh, other thoughts? So what I would say, sir, at the company and the troop level is that understanding the assets that are provided to you and actually caring, by simply caring about the protection warfighting function, because oftentimes what we see is that you have a troop commander or a company commander that's told, hey, here you're going to get this stuff, whether it's uh, any sort of engineer assets like a sapper squad or whether we're just talking like straight equipment like Stinger missiles. And then what ends up happening is invariably that sapper squad just becomes another maneuver element because they, the commander just sees them as, oh, you've got like two extra Humvees and I can attach you to a platoon to like go do, do stuff in the woods versus actually understanding those roles and that the Stinger invariably just winds up in the back of the Humvee. So then when we get something like Outcast coming over, right, and understanding that that air threat is incredibly dangerous, particularly to a company-sized element where you can be looking at a, a total destruction of your element in yeah. less than 60 seconds, but then we're not thinking about those things yeah, if, at that point. You know, I think some of that is if somebody hasn't told us what to do with it, right, the, the brigade, the baton has given it to a company for a reason, a capability, whether Stinger, counter UAS, engineer asset, They've given it to us for a reason. If they haven't told us what they want us to do, then we as company troop commanders, battery commander, we have to ask, hey, why? What do you want me to do with this? Right? Because it's probably not just to protect the company. Absolutely. Um, Sir, yeah. I, mean, I think going back to kind of the equipment piece too, like, you know, there's a lot of folks, you know, at the battalion company battery troop level that don't know, like, what this stuff is. And, and really, it's building those habits before we go to the CTC, and really, it, you know, it begins with the LPDs getting the, the, the chemo or the chemical NCO to go down to the company battery troop level and talk through like what that equipment actually does for you, and having a good understanding of that before you even get uh, to where you're going. Because I've heard General Gardner's uh, some of his war stories as we've talked some of these things. Like the reality, though, is in combat, sometimes we're going to be given things. We're like, oh, great, great. Now, now you're with. I think you were commanded about 300 people in the invasion. 375. 375, okay, great. What's the SOP that I receive an attachment to understand yeah. their capabilities, what they have, the best employment of them uh, as well? But what have you seen uh, company battery troops do well 
um, to protect themselves. Like before anybody's given them, uh, you know, the subject matter expert or the magic uh, donculator that's going to save them. What what are some of the things that we're seeing effective uh, from a protection standpoint? So at the battery level, it's it's understanding land management and understanding how am I going to disperse my howitzers? How am I going to camouflage them? And it only takes one howitzer tube sticking out of a camo net for enemy UAS to pick me up. So it, it, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And then once they do pick you up, have I dug holes with overhead cover in order to be able to harden myself? Uh, and that's that's everything that I can do myself without extra help. And then understanding the step further is how what assets are available to help me do. Sir, I think I mean it's it's the uh, ideological commitment to the e-tool. It's it's nothing it's nothing special. It's it's soldiers have to dig, and it all starts at home station. Uh, you know, if we're if we're going on the field, we know that after uh, you know after two minutes, if I'm standing, I get in the prone. If I'm if I'm in the prone, after X amount of time, I need to get uh, 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 you know I have to start digging a, a ranger grave. I mean, it all kind of starts with habits that you go to home station uh, and, and understanding that that since you know the, the the dawn of artillery, like folks need to dig. Yeah, the, the world's just gotten more real with the ability to be sensed on the transparent battlefield. So what you're describing, that's omnipresent here at JRTC, the ability to be sensed and seen. A battery tube, you know, the tube sticking out is enough to kind of give it away. What, where, what have you seen, again, from an enemy perspective, units that are, are hard to kill, uh, uh, really in the protect, you know, because they're doing the right things in the protection warfighting function? Yes, sir. So discipline, dispersion, Camouflage, the three biggest things uh, to the point of the fires piece. You know, we're common myth, we, we are never going to attempt to go toe to toe with an infantry battalion. We are going to bypass that element at all costs and destroy what's on our H pedal, which is likely key enablers, key assets, and sustainment and C2. That's all we're looking for, not looking for the infantry. So, so like triple sevens, one one niners, radars. Sustainment nodes, command posts, those are tastier. <coughs> okay, absolutely. So with, with the fires piece, we have seen we've seen batteries do a really good job digging their guns in, camouflaging, dispersing. And then there will be engineer equipment in a parking lot in the PAA. So we will see that indicator go find the tubes. And then we've seen the exact opposite of dug in, dispersed, camouflage, and we haven't been able to locate a battery for two weeks. There will just be the lost 119ers rolling around the box that we cannot find, and that happened this last rotation. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yes, sir. Sir, so uh, kind of what Evan was mentioning about, uh, about camouflage, I know Major Cyphers was talking the ideological commitment to the E tool, right? No, uh, we're talking cover there, but that same thing, ideological commitment to camouflage, is just something that we oftentimes see as a key indicator of success amongst units. We understand that most units come here to JRTC with tan colored Humvees, and what we see with our best units here, sir, is that oftentimes they don't let that stop them because you, you can still camouflage from the local foliage and update that camouflage every 24 hours or when you move, and you will create almost no signature regardless of what color your Humvee's car paint actually is. What about with Seabird, right, and the, and the chemical threat? Because, you know, the, the folks that aren't awesome on America, you know, many of them have chemical munitions. Like, how... How have you seen units prepare for that fight here? We, we do, the Geronimo uses a fair bit of chemical munitions uh, in the fight. Yeah, so so at the, at the company and the troop <coughs> level, sir, what we're really seeing that leads us to success 
is understanding where your actual JS list should be. So almost every, like pretty much every unit we see that comes through here, right, will always have their gas mask strapped to, strapped to their leg, which is which is a great start. But there's a whole other set of JS lists that comes with that. And oftentimes when we talk to you, it's like, hey, where is that at? You know, because you probably need to put that on if you're in a chemical environment, not just your mask. The response, well, that's in my A bag, like back with the troop CP, or it's, or it's staged with the FSC somewhere. Well, at that point, it doesn't really help you much. Yeah, right? if we're not adjusting based on what the, the threats and indicators are. Uh, absolutely, sir. And, and I would go back to what Evan was talking about dispersion. Um, acknowledging that we have a lot of people that, uh, a lot of uh, other countries that may not be pro American, but what we'll see even with Jerome was they only, they only do so many chemical strikes in rotation, right? Because that, that is a limited asset for uh, aggressor, na or, uh, aggressor nations. So they're going to target key uh, like key points. And if you don't create a signature and you, you spread yourself out at the troop level or the company level, you're not gonna make yourself a, a valuable enough target to actually be focused on with that. So that will honestly reduce your risk of in the secret environments. If I can, sir, yeah, with, you with, can. With, uh, with CBURN also, I think the big thing is what exactly are the indicators of a seabird attack? It's a, it's a hard question to answer. So the, the other thing you have to do is trust your sensors, primarily your riflemen coming in contact with the enemy. If you're starting to notice the enemy is carrying certain pieces of equipment to defeat a chemical threat, that might be an indicator that they're attempting to use something or they are feeling a threat that you are about to use something. So trusting your sensors, trusting your people on the ground, yeah. your eyes on the ground. I, I want to riff on that. You know, one of the things I've seen here that's like pretty awesome is when companies and troops and batteries take their equipment, inspect it, and then set up the equipment, and they give the the Seaburn NCO like the best day of of his or her life, and let them train people on how to use that stuff, right? Because we, we're going to get the opportunity to do it here, but it's easier to your point if we practice it uh, before we do it. Sir. No, just, just real quick, that's a great conversation. I mean, I think one of the themes here is, you know, protection. We have formations uh, and organizations that do protection, but it's really everyone's job. And it's, you know, I would argue that protection officer, unfortunately for the brigade, the battalion, the company, is, is the S3, the company commander, right? It's leaders, it's operations, it's part of concept of operations. But I think the most nauseous I've seen people here in my 30, you know, plus rotations is when they see that slide that shows not to pivot this to survivability, but they see how much of their assets were actually used to prepare survivability, right? How much of my blade assets were actually used or how many of those fighting positions did we accomplish? And so it's hugely important to assign a leader to those capabilities. We used to call them sink dozer. I think it should be back to the future. Who is helping you ensure you get the most out of those assets? And as we talk engineers specifically, and I've got one of my former first sergeants here with me, you know, I would tell my companies uh, that, look, the engineers are the soldiers that should stand around with coffee and tell you how to make your obstacles and your survivability positions. Because if you do that, you get way more expertise spread throughout the formation. But again, it's that commitment to the E-tool, as was said, and understanding that Many of these war fighting functions are not the jobs of an organization. Combined arms is bringing all of those together. Awesome. And I'm going to come, we're going to come back to this question in a different vein. I have a previous question here that somebody submitted 
Uh, but right now what I'd like to do is I'd like to shift to Sergeant First Class uh, Jackson at Fort Novasil.
and start to figure out what you can transport and how you might need to move your assets around, how you may need to reposition your role ones, how you may need to utilize other role ones on the battlefield, where your army uh, ambulance exchange points need to be, and then to the point from Novacell, also how ground can integrate into air. And so those staff estimates, you know, our, our planning isn't always right, but it helps us think through those things and develop a frame of reference. You know, the plan is nothing, but planning is everything. That's a great quote from one of our former senior leaders. But let's talk to one of our current guys who knows how this stuff goes. Yes, sir. So I think it all starts with the med concert, medical common operating picture. So that's going to have all the locations of the role ones, the role twos, AXPs on there. So developing that, and then probably more importantly, disseminating that all the way down to the first sergeant, platoon sergeant level. If you're in an infantry battalion, yes, you might want to evacuate back to your role one, but a role one from a sister battalion might be closer to you, and it saves time to evacuate over there. You're not going to know that if you don't have the med cop with you. And then it sounds basic, sir, but rehearsals. So if I go to a medical rehearsal, I can tell whether it's going to be effective or not if platoon sergeants and first sergeants are there. Because I know we're going to talk in details about how you're going to evacuate from the point of injury, the CCPs, to the role ones, to the role twos, and up to the role threes from there. So. Okay. No, I'm sorry, Paul. Sir, you know, all, all great points. And, and I think, too, uh, a couple things with the rehearsal piece. It's important for those ambulance drivers and TCs to be in the battalion car at the maneuver level, sir. So, you know, argument we made, like as we as we actually practice uh, at our car, like we, we uh, put in vignettes within that car, say, hey, we have casualties at this point. Now we're bringing up our TCs uh, and our our drivers uh, to to move that uh, casualty from point of injury uh, to the various roles of care, and they're all uh, incorporated in that too. And, and one one thing I I would say, sir, we've seen a couple times in the past. Is that uh, you know some some units will, will dedicate combat power to securing those ambulances? I'd, I'd make the argument that, that we don't have that amount of combat power. So with like a weapons company or securing ambulances, point injury back. Um, I'd say you know we need to do better with our, our TCs and our drivers having a map and comps and understanding where that that uh, that point injury is, and, and they also have the comp and we're able to get them uh, to the various roles of care. Yeah, I think sir, at the company level, those are all great points, but. What does that actually mean to a company commander or first sergeant? Is you actually have to understand what MassCal situation or conditions are for your company. You're like totally still my thunder. <laughs> I'm sorry. So no, I'm going to come back to you. I think one of the challenges that we have right now, and you know, my advice to folks out there is, and, and Sergeant Jackson talked about this: the experiences in the Korean War, the experiences in World War II, and, and do some of the reading about those things to get. To help reframe how we think about this. You know, we were at the maneuver uh, conference last week, and, and you know, one of the speakers talked about the insatiable appetite that large-scale combat has for human life and suffering. Right? It is a scale and scope that many of us ha ha just haven't experienced. I'll let you keep going. So I think the the soldier load concept is something we've been talking a lot about, and that looks a lot different for an IBCT versus SVCT so on and so forth, uh, even between companies. But first arms commanders, platoon arms platoon leaders have to sit down and actually discuss what the actual mascot conditions are because I don't think it is exactly what it's historically been. Of Maybe it's a squad, maybe it's probably less. And platoon leaders and up need to start thinking about that. And then how do we actually rehearse that at the company level? Is it individual soldier proficiency with calling up nine lines? doing TCCC, packaging up a casualty, is it that, or is it the actual transfer to the ACP to get that casualty to a higher role of care? Yeah, and if I may on that, sir, so uh, one other thing to add to that is that it, 
tough decision to make as a commander and a first sergeant right at that level, but understanding that you may have to prioritize soldiers based on casualties, right? So if I may on this, uh, the, the average roll one in a squadron has about four beds in support about that much. I would argue that, or I would say that less than less than 20% of our engagements as a squadron with Geronimo results in less than four casualties. Yep. Overwhelmingly what we're seeing, and this isn't just regular platoon size engagements, we're looking at if, if the RTU is losing that engagement and they're on the short end of that, they're, they're taking anywhere from 10 to 25 casualties at just one engagement, which means that at a platoon level you've already completely overwhelmed. Yep far beyond the squadron ability. And ultimately what that means is, right, is we're not getting we're not getting any sort of air medevac at that time. So then now you have first sergeants that need to look at, well, who is savable in this window? And get away from that understanding of, oh, we're just going to grab everyone and everyone's going to be okay. We simply can't. So I, I give a, a couple thoughts, and I got some time at the National Train Center as well. And I think we've got, you brought it up, you brought it up, this idea of rehearsals. So how we evacuate casualties in consolidation and reorganization from point of injury to company uh, casualty collection point, right? That, that's, that takes practice. Uh, and if we've standardized the way we're doing things, it's far more likely to survive contact. I've seen a battalion have 8% died of only an 8% died of wins rate. And, and the way they did it was the first sergeants and the sergeant major really owned every bit of this, leveraged the expertise from the, the, the med and, you know, officer and NCO, but then really kind of standardized things in rehearsal. Um, and so, you know, any any other outstations have any follow-up questions to that, by all means come up on the net and we can come back to that topic. Any other uh, thoughts or, or comments on this? Sir, I think, uh, you know, as you're going through the operations process, uh, you got to think about committing combat power towards sustainment. And I think part of that is also the medevac. So if we're doing, you know, conducting an attack and if we have two up one back, maybe that, that final support is, is committed to, to casualties as well. Because sometimes we don't have a lock and we can't get an ambulance up there. So we got to figure out how we're going to move casualties back from one injury. Yeah, move, move casualties to a point we can actually get them in a vehicle. And then part of your conditions as well as per gauge, if we know something's going to happen, we can pre anticipate what we need to do pre stage. Assets forward if we need to to expedite the process of casualties. Sir, one TTP we've seen that works well is waiting assets like General Gardner talked about the roll two pushing FLAs forward to the roll one so there's no confusion about is the AXP manned, is it unmanned, what time are you clicking up there? Roll two FLAs are already with the roll one, they receive casualties, that asset moves back to the roll two and then it immediately goes back to the roll one. So you're really not taking any capability away from the roll one, it's sort of the roll two pushing that capability. Hey, uh, I'd like to, uh, I'm going to reach out to the Maneuver Center of Excellence. Do you have any uh, follow-up questions? If not, I'll, I'll go to the, the list of questions that you sent in earlier. Have one coming up now, sir. Awesome. Thanks. Good morning, I'm Captain Preston here at Maneuver Trip C. So in the future, how do you see emerging technologies such as AI and the autonomy of these systems impacting strategies and tactics employed in large-scale combat operations? Additionally, how do you see this affecting roles and responsibilities of leaders at Echelon? All right, so we'll, we'll stick to tactical employment because uh, at Echelon we're at. I mean,
drama, I'll start with you because you're kind of doing some of these things already. We are, sir. Uh, big hats off, shout out to our EW team that kind of tip the spear when it comes to that, trying out a lot of new systems, uh, really testing units that come through here. But we are finding ways to using commercial off-the-shelf assets uh, to sense, to pick up different indicators for different types of units, different echelons. We're actually able to target against those, but like yes, as as technology continues to increase, technology is a great equalizer, which at the end comes down to the end users being able to be more disciplined, more pro proficient. We've talked about continuously the camouflage dispersion discipline thing, and that at the end of the day is what it's going to come back, come down to in life. So, uh, you know. What I'd add is you know, we were fortunate enough at uh, the uh, maneuver conference last week to hear uh, Joel Rainey, the Army Futures uh, Command, the uh, Commanding General. And you know the quote that I wrote down that really stuck with me, technology is going to punish unskilled leaders and untrained units. Uh, but technology in the hand of hands of skilled leaders <coughs> and trained units is going to have an outsized impact. And so, you know, I think what we're already seeing is units um, that do some of the fundamental things, that have this ideological commitment to the E-Tool, that are dispersing and camouflaging, they, they're stacking the deck in their favor. And likewise, units that are employing a small UAS, pairing those things with, uh, you know, manned observers, with EW tied to fires that have been rehearsed, are exceedingly lethal. Um, the small units that are doing those uh, things are exceedingly lethal, have an outsized uh, effect on Geronimo. And, and you've seen that really with the, most of the CDRs that have come through, correct? Yes, yeah, sir. And, you know, the, the DGIs, the SUS, SUAS that has been allocated to companies, we, just like RT Fuels, when we have our SUAS up to the sky, that anxiety of something that is watching you, It'll only remain anxiety unless it's targetable and actionable, and that's only possible if that company battery troop is passing that information along to a targeting authority that can actually prosecute targets. Okay, um, you know, here's another. So I think you're Geronimo. I got I got current four and all Geronimo six in the room. You know, we're we're getting ready to, to get some uh, ro more robotics down here in Geronimo, and this is going to give the army the opportunity. To really work at uh, human uh, machine integration as we go forward, and then you know with uh, Geronimo and AI, you're you know I got Geronimo six in here right now. You're really using that uh, to build out uh, kind of what you're doing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, sir. Yeah, please. Well, while he's coming down here too, we you know we had the question on what we're doing to replicate EW. Uh, here, you know, that is one of the areas as, that as an army, we've got to really understand how to work in the constructive. I'm pretty passionate about that. We'll keep things at the tactical here, but one of the great things about JRTC and Fort Johnson is that we can do live EW, we can do live GPS, we have cyber red teams that come down here every rotation to be able to do as much as the army can currently do in, in, the, in the SEMA domain. Mason, over to you. Sir, uh, to your point on AI, uh, I think, you know, a lot, a lot of makerspace there uh, that our InfoWars team has been pointing out has, has, has really been has been innovating on a lot. What we found is the, the power of a, of a, a generative synthesis, synthesis tool, ChatGTP, is uh, 
exactly what, what Chief Leader will refer to it as, but it's this ChatGTP AI. They're able to take the Odin network, which lays out the the countries that we're, we're, uh, we're fighting for, Turkey, North, North Torbia, and put all those unclassed open source storylines into ChatGTP. ChatGTP learned what North Torbia was, and then what our InfoWars team was able to do is say, okay, you're a press secretary for North Torbia. Um, here's what the 29th IBCT just did. Can you generate talking points for me? And it, it generated them. And, and then they said, can you generate tweets based off of that generated them. And then he was able to generate a, you know, a, a, a virtual persona and generate videos and actual press conferences. This took him about four, four hours to do. He's, he can now do it in minutes. So it can, the, it, can, it can really increase the depth of the immersive environment for JRTC, for NTC, for all the CTCs, because what it allows us to do is rapidly respond to things that, that are happening in the environment that you would see in real time. Uh, if, if, if we were conducting operations somewhere else, but really innovative stuff that the InfoWars team's doing, sir. All right, and then what about from uh, an EW and a, and a red cyber offensive capability? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, sir, absolutely. So what uh, what the InfoWars team's been doing is taking, uh, we have CTC-specific uh, SUAS systems, but really this can be done um, with any, any systems that we have to an extent we can train the behaviors uh, you know, I think the technology and the fielding is going to catch up, but we have the benefit of being able to use uh, a specific system that uh, it's called the TSM uh, T-Storm drone. It's a semi-autonomous drone system. You can swarm up to 50 of them at once, uh, IR and EO capability on it, but it also has a rail system on it. And the, the, uh, the InfoWars team is, is 3D printing payloads for these things and putting them on. So not just aerial delivered munitions, but um, they're also able to take uh, direction finding EW tools um, that we have ground-based EW tools, take those things and fit them onto the aircraft and, and you're able to pick up RF, RF spectrum signals and, and, uh, and locate sense uh, units uh, out in the battle space. Also using commercial off-the-shelf tools that are out there that our adversaries can use. This is all on class commercial off-the-shelf uh, things. Uh, apps that you can put on your phone that can pick up Bluetooth signals. Wi-Fi signals, um, and so what you know. Going back to your point, sir, General Garner, your, your point, and you know a lot of what the panel was talking about, just just being di disciplined with simple things. If we fly one of those UASs, we can fly three or four of them over uh, over one area, over one NAI, uh, and have them looking at different portions of the EW spectrum. If one of them picks up, you know, Thornell's Phoenix Five, and then the other one picks up Five Hundred Nine. Geronimo taught Wi-Fi, and then the other one picks up, you know, a bunch of Bluetooth keyboards. It's really easy to make the, the lead. That, that's a talk right there. Um, let's go ahead and service that with it. You know, that's worth that's worth exposing my guns for. And so, um, but what's, what's, what's really been interesting for me, I've only been in the seat 90 days, sir, and what, what I've learned a lot is, is this is all things that our adversaries can easily do to us. And it's, it's pretty illuminating for me. Um, and it's really made me think about like, how do we do it, you know? Um, yeah. So, and, and to the follow-up questions is, are leaders recognizing the effects on their ability to maneuver? I'd, I'd say they are. And one of the cool things about being in this job and then having previously served at another CTC is I, I think our Army is learning, right? It's never gonna learn as fast as all of us want. 
and the comfort of kind of being in a classroom at times. Uh, but people are learning. The, the improvement in our command post, the discipline with some of the survivability things that people on the panel have talked about, uh, we just got to do it more of it faster. It's kind of the direction we've got to go. I mean, you're right. LISCO is unfortunately great for innovation and learning. Um, because it, it is survival of the fittest, and, and you have to you have to learn to survive. And, and, and to your point, you, you said earlier, it's it's a training center. And I think people sometimes don't think that this is a place where they can be free to try new things. And we develop new things here. Units try out new tactics, techniques, and procedures. Sometimes they succeed, and sometimes they don't succeed. But one of the things this place does by replicating combat conditions is it helps accelerate our learning. And so units willing to try things and train before they get here and run them at their paces help our army get better. Uh, hey, I, I, I've got a question in between, but I'd like to reach out to uh, the Sergeant Major's Academy. Uh, Sergeant Major Walker, if you're up on the net, if you've got any uh, follow-up questions. between the, the Sergeant Majors and, and the, uh, the, the field grades. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, as we, as we go through MDMP, the, we build, the first thing should be building out a, a HOPE timeline. And we should know when every single step of MDMP is going to happen. And, and the Sergeant Major takes that timeline and he goes to each work body function and says, uh, you know, here's, I'm keeping you on track. This is when you owe this update. And then you QAQC that based on, on that uh, experience that that Sergeant Major has. Uh, for uh, you know the operations process, and he's and and here should be able to to lay out the S one. Hey, look, your running estimate is on sat. Like you need to go redo. This isn't going to go in front of the the XO or the S three. Uh, go do it again, and go to each war body function and lay all that out uh, and ensure that they're they're keeping the operations process on track. Yeah, and just commenting what is that? being fully integrated into the staffing, the staff and planning process. It's it, as you said earlier, sir. It's not a separate. It's not NCOs. It's not it's not officers. It's and being integrated into that process and where you fit into it and exerting the influence that you have. I, I'm going to go a little different direction. This is somewhat maybe uncomfortable. I, I think our SAR majors, in many instances, are the only people with the right experience, uh, particularly with individual uh, standards, uh, to help train and certify how we do inspections and what we standardize across the force. Because large-scale combat operations uh, is, is going to be chaotic in part because of the casualties. And so if we can't standardize some very fundamental things, uh, we're going to have a hard time. And our, our SAR majors really, they're the ones we, you know, shooter preference is probably the SAR major shooter preference because that's the person that has the sets and reps to know what's likely to work and then to help filter feedback from first sergeants as we uh, refine uh, some of those uh, standards. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I think, you know, one thing we, you know, we've got to recognize, and, and it's okay because in many ways we're, we're continuing to be at the inflection point as we all get better and better at, at LISCO. And so even though we expect the sergeants majors to be experts, and they are experts, 
but much like our battalion commanders and our, our sergeants majors, if, if you have gaps, you know, to me, I think, you know, when you're at the academy, when you come to the leader training program of a CTC, I think those are the opportunities to be self-aware and to reach out to your friends or grab a, an instructor or grab a coach at LTP and say, you know, hey, I don't understand X. Because I think the, the number of years of experience in different scenarios, once you understand the facts or the physics or the data, you will much more quickly be able to see how to spin that into something useful to the formation than perhaps a younger officer or non-commissioned officer. Um, so but I'm going to go back to the technology real quick. You know, how have you seen you know thoughts and recommendations for company commanders to balance uh, fundamentals while con while contending uh, with new fielding uh, or, or or training on new equipment? So, sir, what I would say is that, it, as you mentioned, like these things are always going to continue upgrading. Like we're always, the army's going to continue fielding stuff to uh, battalions, squadrons, and then down to companies, troops, and batteries. But what I would encourage is that understanding the outside signature, as mentioned by Evan and Geronimo Six, right, that we don't lose touch with our our previous non-technologically based systems for tracking and planning, because too often what we'll see is we'll see units show up here and they have the newest high, you know, like newest technology, right? Like all these cool devices. I'm thinking specifically like ATACs, right? Which are now becoming kind of the new hotness. And we're seeing that pretty consistently across the force now. But uh, unfortunately, when we execute things like MCON events here, right? Which which is going to be pretty consistent in a in a contested environment. In a, in a mission control event. Yes, yeah, yeah, based on the threat. In, in a missions control event based on the threat of the enemy. Uh, oftentimes you'll see that these units will do the right thing and turn off their systems, but then there's no there's no familiarity or any sort of depth of ability. So now we just end up with everyone just kind of being in the dark in their own little bubbles, just kind of waiting out the emissions control events instead of actually continuing to fight. And on the other hand, with technology, sir, at the company level, do you have the depth in personnel to be able to operate that system? So if it's the new cool drone that can fly, do I have more than one person, whether it's a real-world evacuation or a scenario evacuation of a KIA in a scenario, do we have more pilots? Or have now we are just carrying this piece of equipment and it's just dead weight for this company? I think, sir, technology should not replace our use of analog products. We talked about MCOM, you have to turn off all your technology. Guess what? You need to turn off analog products. In LISCO, you're going to displace more frequently. Your analog products are going to go right with you in there. I, I concur with the central uh, the, uh, you know, the widgets are great, um, but the habits are, are more important, you know, and, and it all kind of starts, uh, you know, at, at home station and, and, and building out graphics, right? It's, it's I know I have to stay uh, within this this AO, and, and now I'm going to go practice moving at night, and, and you got to do it without talking on the radio, right? I want you to be at this baseline at this time, you need to stay within these two boundaries, and all of that stuff can be done at home station. Uh, you know, it doesn't even require a ton of resources. You can just grab your rucksack, squat in the woods, uh, get a map, put on graphics, and walk. Yeah, hey, I'm, you know, I remember, um, you know, night, night vision uh, devices is an area we, we have proliferated. We have a ton of that technology, but 
we're largely proficient, not trained. And so some of this gets to like the technology that we do have that's more common, like really got to turn into some of that to be really good at it. Um, employment and other thoughts on uh, technology. So I'm just, I have to agree with what Paul said. Like it, it, technology, you still got to gotta be good at the basics. I get the analog products, like Colonel uh, said, is you, when you do your trans, transitions and your jumps, uh, the analog is what's keeping continuity forward as you go and then when you have an emissions control event where you have as Ron Six said uh, some of the events that they, threats and uh, that they put against you how do you continue to fight and just analog and repetition of practice it's all it's all got to be rehearsed in terms of if I got if I have a digital something how am I translating that into an analog something and the, the trap that I see a lot of like battery commanders falling into we get a lot of data points, but trying to synthesize that into what what's important, uh, specifically in FSCM scrubs on the on the invaders. Uh, I I can establish a pretty robust digital cop on my invaders, but it doesn't mean anything if I'm not scrubbing it, if I'm not updating it, uh, and, and managing those systems. But then also figuring out okay, how do I pull that from my invaders and put it onto a map, and it matches everybody else across. The yeah, I, you know, one of the other ones, and I'm, I'm thinking to a couple previous rotations, you know, it's commitment to it as well. I mean, what we've seen with the ATAC is units that are like, nope, we're going to be good at this, and that means that we're going to practice it, and we're going to practice it in our, comp our platoon level training, our company level training, our culminating training event. We rehearse it here uh, in RSOI, and we commit to it. We may not be awesome at it the first couple days of the rotation, but because we built that foundation, now we get to being pretty good at employing this new capability. Same thing really with small UAS, you know, up to this point. All right, hey, I want to reach out to the FIRES uh, uh, Captain's Career Course. Uh, do you have any follow-up questions? So this is Major Newton from uh, EPCO. Can you hear me? Yeah, one of our captains asked, as we modernize the artillery, are we asking the field artillery officer to be too generalized? So I think the, you got to be good at the weapon system you're on, and a lot of the fundamentals of artillery haven't changed. It doesn't matter if it follows a ballistic trajectory. We still have the five requirements for accurate fire. Uh, a lot of it doesn't change even if we get new toys. I still got to disperse. I got to camouflage. I got to dig. It doesn't change with what weapon system. I think it changes some of the characteristics of what we do, just as uh, Rich said, uh, but it doesn't change uh, the fundamentals of how we operate and uh, new technology and modernization of artillery. It may extend the battlefield, it may make us more lethal uh, with or more precise and change some of the ways we operate. I don't think it opens up us to, opens us up to more generalization. I think we still got to be good at reducing the four functions of the Okay, and, you know, because I, I got to spend some time with Joel Gardner last week, I'm going to go in this direction. Sure, how did you approach learning to be a mortar platoon leader? So that's, <laughs> that's kind of an off-base one, but the, you know, I, I think what it what it comes to to simplify for this audience uh, and not tell the war story is it, it's really understand what your job is. And when I say what your job is, is what does the team rely on you to be able to do? And so I, I tell the story of, of two of us, one 
who learned it from the ground up and me who learned it from the top down. And so the first thing I said is, okay, as a mortar platoon leader, fundamentally, I need to know how to maneuver the platoon. And it's less important for me to know how to shoot the guns or how to be an ammo bearer and things like that. I mean, I want to have shared hardship. But the two most important things for me to do as a mortar platoon leader were to be able to maneuver that platoon, select positions, and lay the guns. And so going back to NCOs, you know, my platoon sergeant had me on the clock. And he was brutal, like any professional coach would be to their, you know, star player, you know, is, is I was too slow or I didn't do it right. But, but that, that is what I had to do. And so I, I do think back towards as a generalist, specialist, I think we all, more broadly, have to understand combined arms. Whether you're a logistician or you're a chemical officer or an infantry officer or NCO, you've got to understand com combined arms. One of the biggest mistakes I think generationally that we've fallen into is we rely on our S2s to know the enemy. And I, and I think back to 30 years ago, we were all supposed to know the enemy. The two's job was to help us through the process, right? And so, you know, back to artillery, I think there's a lot of things that we need to know. Um, but fundamentally, as an FDO or as an FSO or as a battery commander or as a platoon leader, you know, what are the things that I have to do in this job? What does the team rely on me to do? You know, we don't need the wide receivers worrying about how the line is blocking. Just need to know how that blocking is going to enable the play. Yes, sir. And so the other direction I was going with this is, you know, when I took over uh, as a brigade chops, I was completely out of my depth, and it hurt. And then I opened up a manual, and I started reading the manual, and yeah. started with what the duties and responsibilities were, uh, and, and really the function of the command post. And part of what you talked about being a more platoon leader is you read the book. Yeah. And so I think for a lot of us, that, that is good advice, is, you know, start by reading the book. Um, because that will give you the, the base knowledge, and then we get great non-commissioned officers that can help imprint their experience on it. And I know that that's you know, really common uh, in, in the fires community. We have experts. We have subject matter experts, 13 Bravos, 13 you know, Juliets, 13 Foxes that can help us with these things. Our 131 targeting officers. Amen. Use the expertise that we have in the Yeah, and so my, my favorite joke, particularly as a general officer, is every, you know, no offense, because I did it too, like every every captain and major wants to know what book I recommend, and I always start with 3.0. I mean, don't be afraid at the water cooler to, to talk about, you know, reading either, uh, uh, was it ATP 3-37 or whatever the new F, uh, ATP or ADP or FM is, because fundamentally we got to know what our doctrine is. All right. Hey, I'm going to uh, I'm going to reach out to uh, MCCC. So be ready with a question. I've got one in the room, um, but then MCCC, we're going to come to you. Um, so Major Ray, uh, you you had a question in here. Yes, sir. Major Ray from the Live Fire Division S3 had a question for the panel. How do we prevent a near peer enemy from targeting our EM signatures, particularly C2 and logistics nodes? In a listical environment without reduction in capabilities. Oh, that you want us to do the triple Lundy. Yeah. I got it. All right. Uh, hey, we're going to start with you, Captain uh, Mom. So we've, we've kind of beat the horse quite a bit by saying this, but it is understanding when and where to apply assets and not just keeping them running. I'm not super smart when it comes to all the doohickeys in the electronic side of the house, but uh, what I hear our EW 
team talked about a lot is like, hey, we need to understand the conditions and triggers of when we're actually going to utilize this asset. So we're keeping that signature blown away from the enemy. It's not targetable until we need it to be used. And then secondarily, like we've been discussing, sir, is that, that discipline to keep it concealed, keep it quiet, and camouflage it if necessary, and keep it away from the flock until it's needed. All right, you triggered me. So the, the, you know, the first thing really in our pace from a C2 perspective is our graphics. And so, you know, Geronimo did a night infiltration, uh, multiple companies on infiltration lanes without ever keying a hand mic or emitting a single signal until they reached the assault position. And then they reached the assault position, they came up on the net, they called for fires, uh, and then they maneuvered and they were able to talk because they were inside the bubble. But had, you guys had maneuvered for almost six, seven hours without emitting anything, yes, correct? correct sir. All right, what are some other lessons that we've seen? Well, sir, I think it goes it goes back to the, the pace being the graphics. The uh, you know if, if we can graphics and execution matrix, I'd say if, if we can see in time and space on where it is uh, that we need to be uh, at what time, then then that is that is a uh, that's a go ahead for your uh, for you to, to not commit uh, a huge signature. I mean, you know, companies and battalions know at what time I'm leaving, and, and we're we're not. Uh, deviating from that time because we're not asking, we're telling you when to go, we're telling you when you need to be phase line red, white, blue, etc. Uh, that's that's the best way for us to to do that. What what have you seen some habits that are causing people uh, to get to get got? So really, what we're seeing, sir, is kind of funny. Major Cypress mentioned that, but it, it's a lack of understanding of the plan. So by executing proper MDMP and having the right op board and then uh, like the right op board time for questions and understanding so that you have a true understanding two levels up, two levels down for all participants at that op board, as well as a good combined arms rehearsal prior to, particularly at like the squadron and battalion level. That's really what enables you to do what Geronimo does, right? Because I would, I would suspect, Evan, that when you guys executed that infiltration, everyone knew what was going on prior to that, right? So you probably knew what the plan was at the battalion level, which enabled you guys to execute that move without having to come up on the net halfway through and ask for questions. And that's often where we see the problem, is that we, we move through this MDMP cycle really quickly, understanding that it's always going to be a time-constrained environment, but we move through it quickly without placing emphasis on the right parts of MDMP and prioritizing them, and we either execute a radio rehearsal or no rehearsals at all instead of an actual combined arms rehearsal, which means when we start executing that timeline that Major Cypher is talking about, we make it about 15 minutes in before someone comes up the net like, oh, I, I didn't catch this part, or, or I don't know what the squadron commander wants me to do, or hey, I ran into Geronimo earlier than I thought, well, what's out there? And then all of a sudden we're starting to create huge missions, yeah. and, and just, and, and it, which telegraphs our movements. Yeah. We can't have the battalion command post be like my kids in the backseat of the car asking for their yet. <laughs> Sir, that's, that's a great point. They brought up the, uh, we, we, we hand wave between, uh, you know, LD and the, and the assault position. We, you know, whether it's a, a time constraint, but you know, we know that we have to go four, five, six, seven, eight, nine kilometers. Uh, but we don't really think about, and, and really, our uh, you know, we paint the intel picture like what's between us and where we need to go, and then that's that's really something that we need to consider as we're as we're planning operations. Fires, friends, sir. We we've talked about time as a condition before, yeah. And if we if we're finally like, achieving that in our planning where we have a time, we can use a schedule of fires. I can get artillery in the fight without having to press a hand mic because I already know what targets I'm going to hit and when I'm going to hit them. 
uh, but we get so tied up with conditions-based triggers uh, versus time-based triggers. Uh, and then it's really forcing digital fires, and that, that helps us uh, bring down our significant a lot, right? Which I was just saying, which goes back to having a detailed synchronized plan, which goes back to the integrative, what he said, don't skip over all the process of what we do. When we're at brigade, especially with fires, because you have you know, an enabler for the brigade as a whole, if you're at brigade level and you're concept only, concept deep, and you pass that down to the maneuver battalions, and what happens is you end up getting four battalion plans that are not synchronized as a whole, which then the brigade is now trying to determine what's happening at the battalions because they don't understand timelines and they don't really have the control. <coughs> They're not maintaining off tempo, which then you can't enable your fires to lead with HE because everything is reactionary at that point uh, across your enablers. All right, I'm going I'm to shift this a little bit. What are the kind of things that people... You know, we, we obviously have FM and HF and TACSAT and uh, JBCP that, that emit, right? And I think you brought up, we probably don't need to have 10 JBCPs on at the same time all emitting. What are some of the other things that we've you've seen uh, that are maybe not military issue that people are, are carrying around that's causing them to be found on the battlefield? So Apple Watches, uh, watches of all types, fitness trackers, uh, printers, office supplies in the talk, uh, like electronic or Bluetooth keyboards, okay. mouse, all sorts of stuff. About the same thing, sir. It's really what we're seeing is a, is a lot of reliance on on just additional systems that maybe provide a particular use, such as a printer, but then we just keep it plugged in all the time, not just plugging it in when we need to actually print something. Sir, it's already issued, but the stats you want to talk yeah. about what maintainers use your warrant officers are going to tell you they can't do their job but it most likely needs to be windows that are VSAT is up and operational as opposed to 24-7. So operating in time windows with VSAT which doesn't have to just be VSAT we can do that with other things but in particular just based on the ambitions of VSAT. And let's not forget like cell phones. We still see cell phones in 2023. Like and people post on Instagram. Yeah. People post on Instagram where they are on the, taking a selfie. I love a selfie. Um, what else? I, I was going to talk about the cell phone use. It's, it's just the discipline and some of the, the, the small things, right? So when we're talking about all the things that we wear every day and we that emit from your watch to your, your cell phone and then keep them on, even though you've been warned. My favorite one is the, the Bluetooth CPAP machine, sir. That's uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it goes back to you know, things you don't really think about. Uh, if they're in, if they're in the uh, AO, then you're going to get picked up. Yeah, and so some of that why I bring these kind of up is just being aware of what's in our formation, what we take uh, out to the field when we train, because uh, those are the habits that we're likely to carry forward when we come to a combat training center and then, and then forward on our deployment. Okay. Um, and then we've got uh, a Captain uh, Hutton out there, uh, CGSOC. Uh, do you want to come up on the net? Yes, sir. How are you reading? Loud. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Hey, sir. Good morning, sir. Uh, I'm Captain Hutton. I'm an armor officer. At, you know, I'm a uh, resident CGSOC straight out of Fort Leavenworth. Uh, I really appreciate the discussion on the need to understand how to employ combat arms and the urgency of understanding your capability. What is the emphasis, if any, at the company battalion brigade level in creating multiple dilemmas against drywall? 
and where he does see TTPs in creating those dilemmas and in managing them. All right, so I'm going to leave with this one because this is an awesome question. And um, yeah, I don't, I'm not trying to throw shade, but you kind of had a tone of doubt that people are doing that. And I'll tell you, I think people are, and, and certainly from Geronimo, we're seeing some from Blue. And so I'm going to give you some examples and I'll open up to the group. So, uh, you know, we've got a podcast called uh, the Crucible, JRTC, The Crucible Experience, and ha had an opportunity to spend a bunch of time with a SARM First Class from the 82nd SARM First Class Manship, probably one of the sharpest NCOs, you know, I've encountered in the last couple of years. And he described the experience of being on the receiving end of Geronimo doing combined arms maneuver. And he's like, well, first it's clear that the enemy kind of, we maneuvered through the swamp, and they clearly found us, and I think it was based on our, our missions, as we were talking about previously. And then, I, you know, overhead, I hear the, the drone overhead, and the next thing I know, we're starting to receive uh, effective enemy indirect fire, and then there's a small reconnaissance element that had moved uh, in a scene between two platoons, and then the next thing I know, there's a support by fire opening up, uh, dismounted, and then, oh, Terrible things happen because a pair of BMPs come up and they start uh, laying on more suppressive fire. And then all of a sudden, the next thing I know, there's a dismounted infantry platoon that's maneuvering around us. And so at the micro level, that's Geronimo creating multiple dilemmas. And so the higher level, you know, Sergeant Manship's like, and I realize in that moment that that's precisely what we need to be doing to the enemy, right? And we have seen units do that here. Um, some, you know, some great examples you know, we had a brigade uh, that was being attacked by Geronimo, and uh, one of the few times I've seen this, but I thought it was awesome. Um, they, you know, the fixing force in this in the Southern Avenue approach hadn't been all that effective, so the brigade commander ordered that battalion in the South to counterattack, and so they counterattacked. They were in Mop Four because they'd actually been hit with chemical munitions. They counterattacked, and it forced Geronimo to pull combat power away from their main effort uh, to basically be able to block uh, that counterattack from uh, getting further west. And so there, there's an easy example. I think another one is, you know, Geronimo was in a defense, uh, a battalion moved night infiltration with Alpian hand mics about three or four kilometers and threatened uh, one of their locks and that forced Geronimo to pull combat power out of their defense to reorient uh, towards it. But the only way that that works is units that are really good at the fundamentals to pull those off. So now I'll turn it over to y'all, some examples. I won't go to you, we'll, we'll finish with you. What's an example do you see units able to do that? Yeah, so you talked about the counterattack. That was, that was gonna go up and talk about like the psychological impact uh, that that has on, on Geronimo or whoever uh, uh, that allows, or really forces them to pull that combat power from another AO in order to uh, you know deal with that that threat. And you know, I was a your company commander for a long time, never saw it. Uh, and then seeing seeing that unit do that in particular was like really awesome because uh, I mean it's just one of those things that you never see. Sir, I think it's the units being able to do the fundamentals, uh, being able to see yourselves, understand the enemy, and then what options you can generate to create the multiple dilemmas across the war fighting functions, uh, combined arms maneuver or in depth as well. Yeah, understanding the joint fires process and how I can mask those effects, and it's kind of start with what effects do I want. And specifically, what effects do I want at the decisive point? Yeah. Uh, and then, how do we go beyond cross Arizona map? So it's got to be trained at that unit level 
hey, I know I got this crosshairs on the map, but the unit showed up 200 meters to the west. What do I do? And then all of a sudden we had a plan, and now we're waiting 30 minutes for or for unresponsive fires, all because we didn't practice on how I'm going to actually turn that crosshair into a target. You know, and you, you talk about like the joint fires enterprise. You know, one of the, I got um, we had a visitor here that spent some time uh, forward looking at the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict. And you know, he, he said, you know, some of this, what we're seeing is combat sequencing or uh, combined arms sequencing versus combined arms maneuver. What you're describing, you know, if we can give an enemy a direct fire problem, a small UAS problem, an EW problem, along with a ton of echelon fires, that's that's a hard thing for a unit to, to endure itself. Yes, sir, I'm just trying to join them in order here. The, you know, I, I think, you know, to your point, I, you know, some, sometimes it, it's not, you got to be Napoleon to create multiple dilemmas. You just have to use, you know, all eight forms of contact. And I say eight because I'm really talking company, battalion below. It's tough to do the ninth influence, I think, at that level in, in Lisco, what we're talking about right now. But a lot of times we forget about what capabilities we have and leave them on the table. So, you know, General Pappas, he gives a good example because, again, it's the throwback of we knew we used to get tired, right? So we had a list. You know, on whether it was the blackboard, the whiteboard, whatever we had, and we listed all the capabilities and we did COA development, we would write those in. In my brigade, I called it the brigade tool bag or toolkit, right, which always used to get a laugh, you know, but, but it's important when you're tired because if, if you don't think about all the capabilities you have, you, you really tend to focus on your area, your thing, and, and you don't have that opportunity to provide all forms of contact, multiple dilemmas on the enemy. And then it's even better if you can be a little Napoleon and, and get some multiple maneuver dilemmas like you pointed out earlier. Uh, but let's start with the simple stuff, which is using all of our capabilities at the decisive points. Sir, I think it's hardening the BSA so they're not a liability to the rest of the brigade to allow them to, to accomplish what they need to and understanding the operational plan. I think too often we see sustainers that are great sustainers. They don't understand the operational plan and how sustainment can be Yeah, hey, I got I got to you know, pet rock of mine is we're doing a sustainment rehearsal and we have no ops people there. So if you're like a maneuver friend in the room or, or out there, if we're doing a sustainment rehearsal, there's gotta be an operations person that's part of that helping form. It's not just the sustainers pulling, it's the rest of us helping to enable that. Yes, sir, so really uh, what I would say is uh, using multiple forms of contact to not only create dilemmas, but then build that into momentum that then continues to push the enemy. So uh, we had a really awesome experience this past rotation with Alpha Troop F389 Cav, where uh, just with essentially two forms of contact, so just SUAS is uh, period of darkness, obviously, the SUAS in the north, along with indirect fire, we were able to engage Geronimo in their positions. But because we really focused on ensuring that we were only making visual contact and not just driving down the road and into direct fire contact as, as their leading form of contact, we were able to actually get effective fires on Toronto. Now, what was, what was less interesting is the actual casualties that we produced, or the Alpha Troop produced. What was more interesting was that it forced Toronto to retrograde, even if it was just one IV line, and Alpha Troop was prepared and postured to move up and continue to maintain that contact, which then built into a momentum situation, which hopefully, if we aggregate that at a high enough level, will then build into a, a significant dilemma for the squadron to explore. Sir. Uh, yeah, I think we talk a lot about with combined arms, talk about triggers, talking about the, sequ the sequencing for it, but also something that company commanders, 
between leaders need to understand are also the conditions of the trigger. Because those triggers can change because the enemy has a vote. The timing may change, so does that just completely derail the entire plan? Hopefully it doesn't. So the conditions of the, the triggers are important. And we've seen that a lot. And like I led off with, we get beaten all the time. And it's it's pretty it's a helpless feeling when it happens when my arms is used effectively. And you know, I think Pearl Fitzgerald told the story in one of the old podcasts of him and I were rolling down, uh, heading towards an objective, and we got baited into the primary engagement area uh, yeah. for an entire company. One, one of my favorite actions here. Uh, right, because yeah. to uh, Joel Garner's comment, they employed multiple forms of contact at a decisive point, sir. and they'd synchronized it and actually rehearsed it. Yes, and they'd had a really bad day the day before, <laughs> but they AR'd it, and, and to your earlier comment, sir, you know, this is Darwinian. Those that learn fastest, survive, and win, you know, really paid off. Hey, um, you know, I think another thing, and, and <coughs> kind of teasing, a couple people did, I think the employment of a reserve, too, and the practice at employing a reserve, and at the company level, that's usually only gonna be a squad or a section. Um, but, you know, when we think through that decision point and we rehearse it, it can have an outsized impact on, you know, maintaining that momentum uh, and tempo uh, to seize opportunity, or it can allow us to mitigate risk. Uh, hey, I'd like to reach out to the Maneuver uh, Support Center of Excellence. You have a question about EAB units. You know, how, how are uh, EAB units, specifically military police, being integrated into BCT operations? And so I'll, I'll open it up there, uh, either for Major Cyphers or Lieutenant Colonel Chris. Yes, sir. So I think one of the most interesting things about JRTC, we obviously have 21st Airborne Division, so there's the BCT, uh, and what one of the biggest challenges is, they're not necessarily the priority. So we have EAB assets, we have an aviation task force that's here, we get a DSSB or a CSSB for every single rotation. And the DSSB is focused on supporting whatever the priority is for the division. It's not necessarily the BCT at that specific time. So it forces the BCT, the sustainers in the BCT, figure out how to operate, how to support operations without necessarily being the priority. And then for the DSSBs that are coming here, uh, it teaches them how to operate in supporting more than just one element. So there's the BCT, again, there's RAP brigades, uh, so there's some big challenges for that. And then specifically for the MPs, we see them employed uh, a couple different ways. Uh, sometimes they'll be at the BSA providing security there. Uh, they're managing EPWs for the brigade as well. Yeah, that, that's a great point too. With the uh, you know, depending on the task organization, the MPs you know uh, organized under the, the BCT. You know, one of the things that I think is difficult for BCTs or battalions really is is how we manage that terrain, right? It's, it's all the things that uh, that take up the most room and the folks that are that may or may not be comfortable with, with where we want to put them uh, in the battlefield. You know, DSSB, you know, they're going to be within the uh, the division AO, but you know, specifically for for BCTs. Um, how do we do that, that terrain management uh, in AOVR? Yeah, you know, so I'm going to go back to an earlier discussion. You know, I think it starts, you know, with understanding the capabilities of attachments. Or if you're, if you're an MP platoon, uh, separate from your company, you've been attached to a brigade, you've been attached to the DSSB, or the division support area, maybe even attached to an engineer battalion that's fighting on behalf of the division, you know, coming to the table with a clear... Um, checklist to Joan Gardner's earlier kind of comment that this is my combat power right now these are the capabilities I, I bring these are my strengths and weaknesses here's my frequencies call signs this is my latest log stat and come with value out of the gate 
I think uh, particularly uh, helps uh, with what we're doing. And then when we receive those units, understanding how those units are best employed by having the conversation. You know, the MPs get a workout here because it's a the, the division fight of, of what we need to do uh, with locks, but then often a large number of detainee operations as well as uh, displaced persons. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because people used to ask me years ago when I, when I was a COG, you know, well, how do I, how do those units succeed? And it's funny, I always used to say, and you guys maybe have seen this, it, it's actually always the officer of the NCO who's like the pain in the butt. Like the S3 or XO, like tells them, hey, you know, we, we you got like five seconds and, and they talk and, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, you know, the, the SEMA guy's talking again. But, but, but it's, it's the ones that aren't content to sit in the room and just say yellow type, right? The ones that know their capabilities and can communicate what they can give to the fight. Uh, because again, we all get siphoned in when time is, is tight and, and we're tired to the things, you know, that we know. And so, you know, my cyber officer, Ian Bolzer, as a, as a brigade commander, was great because he was not content to sit quiet in the corner. And that didn't mean that everything he said was right, but it helped us not forget about that capability. And our MPs are critical for keeping the routes open. We don't appreciate how congested they get for the terrain management, for the security operations, for the EPW fight, you know, and we forget that. And they gotta help remind us, and so does every other, you know, kind of non sort of maneuver, uh, BCT, infantry battalion, armor battalion kind of formation, right? The, the, the people forget about that. You know, sir, I think in an earlier comment you had about, you know, with engineers, I think this can be true with MPs. If we only have a platoon of MPs, we, we probably need to <coughs> leverage their expertise. And so sometimes that may be, you know, MPs telling other people kind of what to do. When we think about EPWs, and we did an EPW event uh, here that had uh, around 250 Geronimo soldiers surrender. That's more than a platoon by itself can handle. And so we've got to leverage that platoon, but then we got to enable it with other capabilities. I think it's staff officers helping to see that and, and listen to this squeaky wheel, so to speak. Uh, a Sergeant First Class Woolridge from HRC, I see your question here. Uh, how has the role has, of uh, EOD changed as we transition to large-scale combat operations? And you worked some of this planning. Uh, any thoughts? Um, I don't know if it, I mean, it's, it really goes back to the operations processor, right? And, and going back to, this is the capability I have, this is what I can do for you. Now we have to sequence it within the operation. So it's really, you know, understanding, you know, what, what that threat is, what they can do for us, and then uh, this is within the, the sequence of the execution matrix where we can apply that combat power. Yeah, and I think, so I think that's good because as we think about the operational environment, it's, are we concerned about uh, one IED? Are we concerned about uh, you know a weapons facility that has thousands of rounds? And so you know we had the uh, the uh, Seaburn Battalion here, and the, you know, the EOD was super busy the entire time because they were deal dealing with a problem of large scale combat. Uh, you know, tons and tons of munitions that they had to help assess and disable, uh, report back. So we maybe employ them in a little bit different way, and they may be operating at a different echelon. You know. A rifle company's not getting an EOD team on a regular basis. No, they're not a battalion's not getting an EOD team on a regular yeah, basis. Yeah, and really, like, where they fit within the battlefield, too, right? So, I mean, you could almost apply the same logic to, like, establishing a defense. We establish a, we have the flock, we have the security area, we have the, the FIBA, and, like, wherever that, those munitions land within uh, the battlefield geometry and, and, and where we can actually put them uh, and, and 
you know, climb in the right spot. Okay, um, we've got one more question out there from uh, Major Diaz from Medcom and uh, Medevac Operations at JRTC. And so, you know, specifically, uh, how are we allowing units the, the time and repetitions to train the reconstitution processor? That one gets to come to you to start. Yes, sir, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about point of injury up to the first roll of care, most likely to the battalion aid station at the wall one. So our OCs will keep track of whether they've made it through the different roles of care in the appropriate time that they should based on the injury that they have. However, even if they die of wounds before they get to the role one or the role two, we still facilitate training for those medics and those providers by having them uh, work on the patients based on whatever injuries they have there. And then as far as the reconstitution process goes, we almost treat personnel here like a commodity. It's the backhaul of casualties, uh, the deliberate planning for that, your friendly KA, how are you getting them back to the mortuary affairs point, how are you evacuating them out of the DCT's AO to a theater gateway, uh, and then how are you rebuilding that combat power by receiving replacements, and then how are you rapidly moving them forward uh, back to their battalions so they can sort of rebuild that combat power. And you know, just two quick things on it. One, I think we do a great job at, uh, at JRTC in making the brigade reconstitution cell, the reporting, making sure that we're not just you know, reeking people, uh, but that there's actually a flow. And, and oh, by the way, you know, a tank doesn't just come back to you. You better marry up the new crew to be able to send a tank. So we, we do that process a lot. I, I do think there's always a balance between making the brigade do it right and realistically, but giving training reps to our soldiers training here. So there's always a balance at some point when you, when you flip that uh, switch. But one of the great things we do here is innovate. If you've seen the new casualty cards, uh, that are out there that aren't the old stick figures that I had when I was a young officer, but actually are making people work with wounds and, and do things, you know, that is folks like the ones sitting at the table that innovated that. And then frankly, if you have good ideas, you know, let me know. Uh, so Captain Hutton, if it's a loaded question, let us know. I had a great idea from the maneuver conference from a young officer that I haven't gotten to share uh, with the COG yet. He said, have we thought about in LISCO with the scale of casualties of reconstituting a platoon, but then putting them in another company, so you have to deal with that. I mean, so there's great ideas out there, and we're willing to listen to a lot of them. Um, okay, so team, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to you here in a second with uh, kind of the final question. We'll go down the line, and it's um, the question would be is if, if you could tell your if you could say self, your younger self, you know, what do you wish you knew based off what you've kind of learned here? And so I'm going to answer that first. And then we're going to go this direction uh, down. So I'm going to answer it because I got a little bit more time to think about. It, so I'll let you think. So the, the first thing, and you know, my battalion sergeant major when I was a company uh, commander, uh, command sergeant major retired Jim Miller. Uh, you know, he, he poured his heart and soul into me and tried to mentor me. And now it's only being, I think, uh, having more sets and reps that I appreciate it. I think it's the importance really of discipline. Right, and it's this idea that um, you know we're in a profession where the margins are incredibly tight, uh, and we're going to live with the consequences for the rest of our lives. And so, I, you know, I think this, um, you know, it's not just doing it; it's doing it right, and it's doing it right again, and it's doing things until you can't do it wrong. And that is really hard to be committed. Uh, to doing something so many times that everybody is like, ah, I'm done with this, why are we still doing this? Okay, let's do it one more time, let's do it one more time. 
until it's complete muscle memory under high stress. Okay, Paul, to you. Sir, I think, you know, at the field grade level, it's starting with a, you know, the, the operations process with the timeline, the whole timeline. And I, and I think that's, uh, you know, we also have a battle rhythm against that. And you're staying disciplined within that, uh, that whole timeline, and which, which helps drive the operations process. And I'd say at the, at the company level, sir, you know, we you, do. You just snuck two in on this. I did, sir. <laughs> All right. uh, so I think at the, at the company level, uh, I think we do a pretty good job at, at explaining the why within our mission statements, but I don't think we explain the why very well for routine actions. So why do we submit this log stat, right? Like, why should we be doing this at, at a home station? But I, I think what company commanders uh, should understand is that, that if, if they don't do the routine actions, it has a, a compounding or adds compounding friction at the BCT level, which could possibly desync battalion and brigade level operations. So having that understanding on why you're, uh, you're, you have, you start with a discipline timeline, discipline habits, uh, will, will, will set you up for success here at CTC, sir. Okay. Sir, I think if I was to talk to myself uh, when I was come from what I know now from what I was becoming at Brigade FSO is uh, repetitions matter and, and putting yourself in scenarios uh, that challenge, in the training scenarios that challenge us uh, across all the forms of contact and our levels of understanding and then getting the repetition on it. Uh, don't think you're gonna show up to game day ready if you, if you haven't practiced and got the sets of reps on it. Yeah, and you can't, you can't expect somebody at the higher <coughs> echelon to give you all those reps. Like, you gotta give yourself a bunch of those reps. And I, 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 and I think back to one of my humbling experiences when I was a brigade episode. I received a couple of new captains. I had some senior captains, and I got very comfortable working with them, and then I got some brand new captains in thinking they were going to operate at the same, you know, at that level. And, you know, and you have to go back, you have to train, and, and not everyone's at the level you are, and you have to work with them and develop them, and you do that through repetition and through training. I didn't really take for granted ammunition management, because it always just showed up to the firing point, and I had exactly <laughs> what I needed. Uh, so understanding, especially at the battery level, right, like what, what is my role in, in shaping that fight for the battalion, and then especially at the battalion level, how do I uh, it goes down to the math problem of haul capacity, being able to anticipate future operations. I took for granted class five, and if there's something that I wish I could go back and reach myself, it's, it's the same. Sir, the pace and tempo of your skills on my line tech. If you aren't ready as far as basic soldier skills go, if you can't defend the BSA, if you can't dig in your liability to the brigade, you need to come here with standards and SOPs. Sir, what I would have told my younger self is that as a commander, I need to remain tied in with my higher echelon staffs because ultimately as a triple C student, you're probably gonna be going to staff, right? And then once you once you finally take command, you're like, ah, oh, yes, done. I can get away from those people, right? And you're like, you're around, you're around with your soldiers, you feel great. And then you come to a place like this and you stay in the field, you're like, why is the plan screwed up? I don't understand why people do all these things. And, and it gets very frustrating at, at, the, at the, troop com or the troop and the company level what I've realized being here is that you have a lot of freedom as a commander to move around at any echelon to move around the battlefield and that if you just apply yourself to going and seeing your higher echelon staff, seeing at the brigade level, just to at least get an awareness of what's going on, it'll make a little bit more sense. It'll allow you to kind of remove some of those friction points or lean into them as Major Cypher was talking about and hopefully make them better. It may be a little cliche, sir, but don't underestimate the value of an incomplete order 
for a rehearsal at any at any level within TLPs. Um, I know, you know we we always try to go through the TLP process. Believe it or not, Geronimo does in DMV and TLPs. Uh, we are in the army. Uh, we we do TLPs and the conditions change. The enemy has a vote. Having this last rotation uh, planned for an air assault into a pretty cool LZ and that LZ changed. I got to go see Colonel Wheaton instead. So it, it all changed. Um, and being able to sit down, being able to frago off of some kind of plan is better than nothing at all. And that's probably the biggest thing I've learned. Sir, what's your lesson to your younger self? I was thinking about my GRTC rotation. You know, as, as a young lieutenant here, I remember, um, and I think there's some goodness in this, is my attitude was, how did we do? You know, how did my platoon do? You know, and, and the whole platoon was oriented on, hey, we're going to be the best, we're going to do the thing, you know, we're going to win. And uh, and I think that's great, whether it's a company or, or if I was a young leader, probably I'm thinking more about, but how am I contributing to the battalion's success as well? I, I only get a B plus if the platoon's great, but, but I ain't ever going to be that A unless I'm helping enable uh, the battalion because we've got to put the whole thing together. And so everyone has to have the attitude of I'm going to do my job, but but I got to recognize my job's also helping the others to do their job. Yes, sir. All right. So, hey, I, I, we're going to close this out. I'm going to give General Gardner uh, the final word here in a moment. Uh, what, I, what I'd like to start with is a thank you uh, to the community uh, that's here in the room, uh, but more importantly, the community outside of JRTC uh, that's committed uh, to war fighting. Uh, and learning and appreciate you being involved today and your great questions. Um, thank you. Uh, you know, I'll make a shameless plug for uh, the, the, our podcast, uh, The Crucible Experience, where we, we talk about a lot of these things. Uh, Sergeant Major Paul Oscar Nine uh, has done a, a series, is doing more. We've got more folks. And so if you have a, a topic uh, that we didn't get into enough here, reach out because some of these folks on the panel are going to do podcasts uh, for us and we're eager uh, to have a dialogue about your questions and the things that you're interested in out there. And then, uh, you know, the last thing I would uh, say is we're your JRTC, so to the Sergeant Majors at the Sergeant Major Academy, if you can peel away for a couple days when you're your next unit, uh, come spend a couple days with us riding around. Uh, we we want to share what we see here because uh, we're just as interested in, as all of you in making our Army better. Sir? You know, for, first of all, I'd, I'd like to thank the folks that set this up uh, on the team, uh, and I'd like to thank those that participated. At, so at last count, we had almost 600 distinct entities on this call. Many of those entities had anywhere from a few to a hundred. So we, we have reached, you know, that, that, you know, battalion plus brigade minus worth the leaders, and so I thank both all those that participated as part of this profession, um, but also everybody who had a hand in uh, setting this up personally on behalf of JRTC and Fort Johnson. Thank you for joining us on The Crucible, the JRTC Experience. The Joint Readiness Training Center is the premier crucible training experience. We prepare units to fight and win in the most complex environments against world-class opposing forces. We are America's leadership laboratory. Again, we'd like to thank our guests for participating. This podcast was created and produced by Mr. John Mabes. 
It was recorded and edited by Chief Thomas Rich and researched by First Lieutenant Anthony Cho. Intro vocals were done by Mr. Robert Chopper. Special thanks to Captain Jermaine Branch and Mr. Jeff England from Public Affairs. Be sure to like and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest warfighting TTPs learned through the crucible that is the Joint Readiness Training Center. Follow us by going to https colon forward slash forward slash l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash j-r-t-c. We'd like to thank our partners at the Center for Army Lessons Learned of the Combined Arms Center, especially the JRTC Call Observations Detachment. Be sure to follow them on social media as well. Follow them at https colon forward slash forward slash www.army.mil forward slash C-A-L-L. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review us wherever you listen or watch your podcasts, and be sure to stay tuned for more in the near future. The Crucible, the JRTC experience, is a product of the Joint Readiness Training Center.